Welcome back to another episode of the Money with Katie podcast brought to you by Morning Brew, jingle coming soon. So today's episode will be different than the previous ones because today I am bringing in a few different members of the Money with Katie community to share their experiences with us. So what are we talking about, you ask? Well, we are talking about what gambling addiction research teaches us about our relationship with earning and spending. I know you're probably like, whoa, sis, pump the brakes. How did we go from 401k rollovers and combined finance hacks to gambling addiction of all things? But I will tell you how. My new daily podcast walk. So I was listening to a podcast about dopamine and how our brains down-regulate or up-regulate, depending on our behavior. Still trying to figure out um, why I feel the like biggest serotonin rush after an in-person cycle class, but TBD will report back. Anyway, a quick disclaimer. I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV. These are my takes and insights based on the data presented to me in a single podcast. So please gauge the scientific accuracy of this episode accordingly. If you're a neurologist and I get something wrong, please feel free to slide in my DMs and yell at me. That said, let's jump in because I think there are a lot of interesting findings that are worth learning about. So, Anytime dopamine is released in the reward pathway in your brain, your brain feels good. And immediately, you're going to want to do more of the thing that triggered said dopamine release, i.e. wine on the couch with Real Housewives after work. So as I was listening to the podcast, I imagined people doing hard drugs and like drinking a lot of alcohol, like, you know, those like stereotypical addictive behaviors. And I was like, oh, surely I don't engage in any addictive behaviors. High-fiving myself on this walk, like, oh, way to avoid addiction, money with Katie. Good job. Then, as if on cue, she goes, you know, Netflix and social media, they're also extremely addictive from a dopamine regulation perspective. This is Dr. Anna Lemke. This was the guest on the podcast. And it um, promptly interrupted my self-high-five. So, Like, yes, flash to a 30-second montage of me burrowing into my sectional every night, just slack-jawed to zone out for hours and get lost in whatever new comedy teen drama is ranking on Netflix. So, right, like, I'm walking away from this thinking, okay, maybe I'm not immune. Maybe nobody's immune. That's kind of the secret that Dr. Lemke was trying to get across. None of us are. Simply put... Our primitive brains have not evolved to process the intense dopamine hits around us. So each and every one of us is subject to addictive tendencies as we age and as our brains become less plastic. But the gambling research in particular really struck a chord with me, partially because of the fact that gambling involves money to begin with and I kind of have never understood the gambling mindset because I'm so protective of money but gambling addiction works very interestingly and and Dr. Lemke shared research that revealed a particularly fascinating finding and well my only experience with gambling was sitting in a blackjack table in Vegas doubling my money then promptly losing it all and swearing I would never go to Vegas again I think the patterns inherent in gambling addiction actually teach us a lot 
about the broader implications of addiction in general and their applications for our financial lives, for our financial behavior. So in a study where a gambling addict and a healthy control, so someone who wasn't addicted to gambling, were both hooked up to all sorts of heart rate and dopamine monitors, the researchers found that the gambling addict's dopamine levels were highest when they were losing. Yeah, it had nothing to do with winning more money like you would think. It was just when the stakes were the highest. So when the gambling addict was losing, their adrenaline and dopamine levels were high, indicating that the high does not come from the win. It comes from being fully immersed in the experience, which intensifies when the stakes are high. So she called it this state of non-self escapism. Again, can we like insert montage here of me drooling on the couch, rewatching Never Have I Ever, fully immersed in Devi Vishwakumar's two boyfriend predicament, or 17 year old me watching Serena Vanderwoodson grapple with her feelings for Nate Archibald for seven hours in a row. I wasn't engrossed because I was experiencing effort or human connection or anything like that. I was engrossed because I was disconnected from myself. I was experiencing the same non-self phenomenon that gambling addicts, alcoholics, drug addicts experience when they use. So Lemke described this feeling of non-self as addictive in itself. It's a sort of alternate reality that feels good. But what does it mean for our brains that a gambling addict feels best when they're losing? I think it means that to some extent, we can't always trust our own feelings because we are running the equivalent of Windows 1500 BC in our amygdala. So you don't have to be a gambling addict to engage in addictive behaviors around money. And while the obvious connection here is probably shopping addiction, a very powerful dopamine feedback loop that we will come back to in a moment, I think there's something to be said for an earning addiction too, this act of getting more money. After all, anything that creates the dopamine release in your brain can become addictive and maladaptive if it's not regulated. So this gambling addiction finding in particular, though, is interesting to me because it highlights that the way our brains process and pursue dopamine can appear to us completely nonsensical. Why would I feel good when I'm losing? Why would I pursue something that should objectively feel bad? And how can we learn from our brains to avoid succumbing to these damaging feedback loops, particularly in our financial lives where the stakes are very high. So I wrote recently in a blog post about more than tripling my income over the last 18 months that I've been surprised how earning more has actually caused me to fixate on my income more, not less than when I earned less. And at the time I couldn't really make sense of it, but now it makes perfect sense that the more my earning dopamine pathway was reinforced the more it craved. So I was trying to think of a good analogy for this, and this is just going to reveal how much I like dessert, so bear with me. But it's a little bit like if you switch from an ice cream once a week schedule to an ice cream once a day schedule. At first, you're going to be like, hell yeah, more ice cream. But before long, you start to expect the ice cream. You spend six months eating ice cream every single night. And if one day that ice cream is at risk of being ripped away from you, you're gonna notice when it's gone and it's going to be painful. As opposed to 
quitting your ice cream habit cold turkey after eating it once a week when it wouldn't really impact your life that much to cut it out entirely. So you might start to go to extreme lengths to get that ice cream to ensure that you never have to go without it. Do you get the metaphor? The ice cream is money. When I got my bi-weekly paychecks for $1,500 each, I didn't really think about money all that much. I spent it and I saved it in a pretty laissez-faire way and I was mostly content with that. I had a net worth of less than $100,000 and I truly barely thought about it. In other words, money did not really impact my day-to-day life in a noticeable way. So flash forward to the best months of 2021 when both my business and my full-time work were popping off. I might make anywhere between $20,000 and $40,000 in a month, depending on how much I worked and how much I sold my soul to Gmail. My phone has literal home screen widgets that display my net worth and spending in real time. I waste an embarrassing amount of time contemplating my financial situation. And it occurred to me, as I listened to Dr. Lemke describe addictive behavior, that I might be addicted to earning and investing. And it sounds ridiculous and kind of annoying, but when she described the symptoms, which are, about to sound like a pharmaceutical commercial, rumination, obsession, emotional ups and downs, engaging in objectively harmful behavior like overwork, I realized, hey, I fit the bill perfectly for this. And I know addiction is a loaded word, but she described it as a maladaptive and compulsive relationship with anything. So as promised, let's circle back to the financial habit that most probably associate with addictive tendencies, and that is spending. So here's where shopping can become addictive. If you're a shopper, you are probably familiar with the idea of retail therapy. And there's a reason that people shop when they're feeling emotional, whether those emotions are positive or they are negative, because it creates the familiar dopamine feedback loop. Shopping addiction in particular is interesting because it it demonstrates the power of momentum really clearly. Someone that buys one thing is more likely to buy two things and so on. Like you get that first hit of dopamine and you're suddenly more willing to overextend yourself to get the second and to keep that high feeling rolling. You may even experience that feeling of non-self when shopping. Have you ever had an Amazon blackout where you're just bouncing from one recommended item to the next, adding it all to your cart indiscriminately, like one purchase fueling another purchase? And it's subtle and it's maybe even subconscious, but shopping is one of those behaviors that lends itself to an escape from actual reality and toward a projection of an alternate reality. It's like, this is what your life could look like with these things. Similar to the gambler who may feel the most dopamine when they're losing, someone who's addicted to shopping or just exhibits addictive tendencies in their shopping behavior may actually feel the biggest rush when they're spending money that they know they shouldn't be. It's like the shopping equivalent of losing. I mean, it makes sense because for thousands of years, our brains evolved in worlds of scarcity. Acquiring something new meant that you were going to live to see another day. Now, the cave paintings are from Neiman Marcus and they are 10% off. And it's no wonder that our brains have no idea how to regulate that. Or imagine Beyonce is going on a world tour that may never happen again. Our caveman brain spends first, thinks later. 
In fact, I wanted to talk to somebody who could relate to this. Someone from the Money with Katie community who could speak to being in this exact position. So I talked to a young woman named Cynthia. Beyonce was having a concert, the Formation World Tour, which was amazing. And absolutely loved going to it. But I was just like, you know, I have all this money. And so I bought four floor seats for me and three of my friends. And the money I had made at that point was just from an internship. So it's like a finite period. So it was a three and a half month period where I was earning my money. And then like at least two paychecks worth. The total price, $5,000. And I wanted to know what were the consequences? I even think now if I spent $5,000 on something unexpectedly, there would be consequences. So, okay, you spend two paychecks on Beyonce tickets. Great. But then what? I had a tiny realization when the next school semester started because like most of my education is like in college was funded through like scholarships and grants. But then like you pay by like when I went to college, it was pay by credit hour. It wasn't like set. So like having to pay for my own tuition out of money that I could have funded from my internship was kind of a realization because then I had to take out a loan to pay for tuition that semester when I had that money just like a couple months prior. That's the hard part. These decisions often have downstream consequences that are not immediately obvious in the moment. One thing I learned from talking to our community about these experiences is that they're actually more pervasive than you'd think. So another person I talked to was Kate, a 23-year-old, moderately high earner living in Dallas, Texas. She is the perfect example of someone who you probably wouldn't expect to identify with this idea of having an issue with spending. In fact, she's the person in her friend group who kind of doles out the financial advice to other people. I well, so I'm really outing myself here because <laughs> now that I'm attaching my name to this, but uh, I think people would be generally surprised because to be honest, a lot of people go to me for advice um, when it comes to personal finance. I uh, have been interested in this in a lot for a long time. I like to read about it. I like to learn about it. I'm not shy about my passion for it. And I'm happy to share exactly what I do. And so when most of the advice and most of the conversations I have around finance and personal finance are like, oh, this is how I didn't get my nails done for six months. And I don't buy coffee at Starbucks. It's always the positive light things. And so now coming on here as someone who is saying, oh, I, this is how and why I have a spending problem. I really wanted to know why. Kate thought that she had a spending problem, so I asked her to dig a little bit deeper into moments or experiences that put her in a position to feel like, okay, I think I'm overspending, and here's why. I'm not even going to hide behind saying, oh, well, it's something I really value, but I'm going to go right out and say, nope, (laughs) I spent money on something and it really didn't lead to much. So that's interesting because as I'm listening to you describe this, that to me at the outset does not sound like somebody that would have a spending problem. So when would be a classic example of this phenomenon for you? 
I think a lot of times, and maybe this is recent because we just went through Christmas and my birthday is next month. So I've been attributing these mentally sometimes to this umbrella that I'll call celebrating. Okay. So in Christmas time, I, you know, I'm young, I have a job now. I think there's some memes going around about like job money, which means like money you can spend on whatever you want. Um, (laughs) And I want to buy cute things for my friends. I mean, especially when literally things are being bought these days by people like me and others, because they come in cool, like marketing containers, like the product container is cool. And that's a reason to buy something, you know, you want to buy cute things. Like I buy all of my friends, these really cute socks with smiley faces, you know, smiley faces are really big right now. Um, and I just was like, Oh, here you get one and you get one like Oprah. And, um, when you're young, there are so many reasons to celebrate sometimes I umbrella these things together and I rationalize it by saying that, oh, well, this is because I'm celebrating and because I'm living in the moment and you're not always going to get engaged again. And your friend isn't always going to have a new apartment again and things like that. So I think that's how I have, have fallen into this trap sometimes for sure. So It feels like young people, especially with addictive tendencies towards spending or who are kind of caught up in that dopamine feedback cycle, are up against an additional layer of complexity. It's the fact that we are in a stage of life where there are myriad reasons to overspend, celebrate, commemorate, and... To make matters worse, we have access to a photo sharing platform where we all post our highlight reels of said celebrations for others to judge and compare. Sometimes it might even feel like, oh my God, I'm buying things more for the gram than for the event in real life itself. And Kate had an interesting perspective on that too. On Instagram, obviously, I don't, we don't need to go through this. Everyone's putting their best face forward. It's probably not super realistic. Um, something like now, if we're talking about, oh, celebrating my birthday, if I bought five bottles of Vuv just because the photos would be so fun and trendy and look like I'm at some glamorous party in New York, you know, or if I bought five bottles of champagne from Sam's that arguably is pretty similar, you know, even tasting actually, um, they kind of have it down. It's like, would the joy be the same? Would the warmth that I feel be the same? And so that's what I mean by when you're reflecting, pay attention to the things that made you happy and then try to extrapolate Are the is the brand part of it or is the fact that I paid someone to do a balloon garland. Like if you take that away from your mental picture of whatever it was in this case that you're celebrating, but it could be anything, you know, would the feelings be the same? Would you remember it the same? Cause I think this is a cliche, but we remember the feelings. We remember the way that people made us feel. We, we really don't remember. And frankly, sometimes it's cringy, like to look back at what you thought was cool in like 2008, you know, <laughs> Instagram might just exacerbate something that we are already prone to do, which is to justify our behavior by telling ourselves that other people are doing it too. So Cynthia also mentioned this phenomenon when I asked her about not having any savings at the time and if that made her nervous. It made me nervous a little, but like I didn't really care at the time because like Mm -hmm. for me, I knew all these other people around me my age who were like, going on vacations is like spending their money and like, you know, you just want to do what everyone else around you is doing too. It's just like, well, if I have to spend money, it's no big deal. I'm living life, right? Like money isn't everything. 
in some ways, excessive spending transcends behavior that we know is bad for us. It becomes an extension of us. And this makes it especially difficult to change behavior that may start as a dopamine reward pathway, but eventually morphs into a stand-in for who you are. You're picking out the face that you're putting forward. You're almost like picking out your personality. In today's world, so much of what we have and what we buy speaks for us. And so it's a deeply personal decision because we're deciding how we look to the world. And that's why so many people, and dare I say, you know, women struggle with this because it's deeply personal. It's really easy. Sometimes a lot of finance people are like, you stupid girl, of course you don't need to buy Starbucks, brew it at home. Except that might, that might hold a lot of your identity in it. One thing that stuck out to me during these conversations was the way in which our upbringings impact the predisposition we have towards spending. I am so thankful that Taylor shared her story with me because I think beyond just being incredibly vulnerable, it's a good window into the way traumatic financial experiences in childhood can impact our own relationship with money as adults and the cycles that we find ourselves in. Yeah, so growing up, I grew up um, really low income with seven people in my family. We were on food stamps, kind of like had that poverty mindset really young. Um, my parents never taught me about money. Like there was always kind of like the idea that we had like this, uh, like it was never enough. Right. And like, even as a kid, I remember being afraid to ask like for the $5 field trip forms and stuff. And it was just like, Oh, okay. So at young age, really bad sense of money never was taught. And then when I was in high school, we were homeless for a while and kind of like, again, that like sense of security around money was like, oh, yeah, we don't have it. It's just not a thing. But compounded with that, I saw my family like spending money and like um, later on found out my dad had an addiction and was like very, um, spent a lot of money that we just didn't have. And so a lot of those patterns, I think, are just like subconscious and come from that and that is kind of how I've shaped my money ideas is like never enough, but I still want things. So I'm going to spend, even if it is like, yeah, I don't have, I don't necessarily have enough money for those like organic groceries or that rice that's $12 a bag, but I still am going to get it. Notice that her example was organic food. My non-professional assessment of Taylor was that she really wasn't an overspender. She was just trying to live a decent life on a teacher's salary. That's where these lines get blurry. What is overspending relative to? How do you define it? Is it a dollar amount? Is it a specific thing you're spending on? Or is it just your relationship with the experience and a particular dopamine cycle that you are engaging in and a feedback loop that you're chasing? I don't know. So now that we've dug into the why, Let's talk about how to deal with financial addictions, whether that's spending or earning and saving. And first of all, if you believe you are truly addicted to something harmful, please seek help. There are plenty of mental health resources available to us in 2022. I'm not one of them, but seeking a professional might actually make sense if this is something that's meaningfully disrupting your life. But if you're just curious about how to do a little system reset, these tips might help. Unfortunately for all of us, remember how I said I wasn't the doctor? Yeah, I can't claim credit for these. They just came from the addiction experts whose research I've been discussing on this episode. So 
you're good to go. And I will link her interview, the one that originally inspired this episode, in the show notes in case you want to listen to it. The first thing that you can try is engaging in effortful behavior that triggers a quote-unquote pain response in the brain. So let's be very clear. When we're saying the word pain, we don't mean to engage in self-harm or other actually painful behavior. So please don't get it twisted. We mean things like moderate to intense exercise, reading a challenging book, working on a puzzle, cooking a difficult recipe, something that causes the brain to expend effort. That's really what we're going for here because effort is translated as pain in the brain and the brain responds by upregulating, responding to the painful stimuli by releasing dopamine to offset it. So maybe the next time you feel the urge to hop in the car and hit target, instead you take a jog or you read a book. I know it's like, Mr. Rogers' Guide to Hobbies, but it allegedly works. Why does it work? Well, compare something that requires moderate effort to a dopamine-inducing feel-good stimuli. Similarly, the brain tries to create balance when you engage in a feel-good stimuli, and it tries to return itself to homeostasis by down-regulating halting dopamine production to offset the infusion from the feel-good stimuli. This can help explain why high highs are often followed by low lows. It's the brain trying to restore balance, and that's really the sad reality of addiction. After a while, you're not engaging in the behavior to feel good. You just have to engage in it to not feel bad. So engaging in behaviors that are effortful can help break dopamine cycles and restore normalcy. I have to tell you, the thing that I kept thinking about when I was writing this episode was the way that on a Friday night, I love to get a bunch of junk food and watch TV and drink on the couch and just, I mean, it really is like a numbing party and it's nothing crazy, but it's bad food. It's drinking alcohol, going to bed early. It's very loungy and it's kind of the difference between self-soothing behaviors and actual self-care. It's the reason why like if you were to take a bath and journal and like go for a walk, you're probably going to feel a hell of a lot better than after the couch session. So anyway, I got the sense from Dr. Lemke's research that the effortful behaviors don't even necessarily have to correlate to the addiction. It is simply enough to do things that teach your brain how to upregulate instead of downregulate. Another thing that might not be supported by the addiction research, but does seem to help a lot, accountability buddies. So Cynthia told me that the turning point for her was getting engaged to her now husband, who served as a bit of a gut check for her in this area, where she felt like she actually couldn't really trust her own gut. And uh, we got engaged. And then he's like, okay, now you really need to tell me like how much debt do you have? Like student loans, like credit card. And then I showed him, he's just like, (laughs) he kind of like was shocked. He was like, what are you spending your money on? Like, cause he wasn't going to go through all the credit card statements at that point. It's just like, why do you have all this? Like, what are you spending on? And it was like a sense of shame. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't know. Just like living life, you know, like. Do you remember what the number was at the time? It was, um, if you feel comfortable sharing, it was probably 15 grand in student loan debt, which is not much compared to other people for sure. 
and then in credit card debt, probably another 10 grand or so. So there's also probably a learning in there too. There was an openness and an honesty that had to come first before the behavior could change. But we will circle back to Cynthia's story in a moment. So what else does the research suggest to us about ways to break the cycle? The second primary way is a 30-day dopamine fast. I know it does not sound very fun, but this one, on the other hand, does directly correlate to the addictive behavior, and it's exactly what it sounds like. For 30 days, you abstain from the addictive behavior, so in this case, probably talking about spending entirely, to try to shock the system and break the cycle. For spenders, this would look like no discretionary spending for a full month and being very honest with yourself along the way. What is discretionary and what is a necessary purchase? That honesty, by the way, is crucial for self-respect because if you live in alignment with your actual values, that feels really good. So in the words of one of my favorite soul cycle instructors, don't fall into the trap of bullshitting yourself. Like there are real tangible benefits to being honest with you in building that self-respect. And for all of you who love a happy ending, I did want to ask Cynthia in particular about her position now. Are you debt free now? I am debt free. So, and a lot of that has to do with him and it's great. I like contribute like if you can have an accountability partner and you're debt-free trying to do it like if you don't mind sharing it with someone have them be your gut check like please do it because like it worked so well for me so for someone like me who is self-diagnosed addicted to earning and putting away money hoarding money and really putting everything else sleep social life you name it on the back burner in pursuit of that my challenge would be to do the bare minimum for 30 days. Just enough to not get fired or have my business fall apart, but not focusing on the money at all. In fact, I think a true cleanse for me would be deleting the Copilot app off my phone and turning off all my notifications for income and spending and just going into a complete finance blackout. A full fast from the dopamine cycle that triggers every time I see that I make a sale or I get a paycheck or I make a contribution to an investment account. And obviously those things are all good in moderation, but not when you're working 80 hours a week to chase the high of an even higher paycheck next time. So I invite you to take on this challenge too. In your financial life, like what would you cut out? What financial behavior gives you the dopamine high? And before we go, a note on pursuing moderation. At the end of the day, I really think that trying to make a lot of money or buy a lot of shit is mostly in service of the same sensible goal, which is to live a really good life. Sometimes, though, I will sit back and wonder if I'm losing the forest through the trees. Multiple six-figure income, relatively frugal spending, the obsession with conversion rates and bonuses and RSUs and all at the expense of having leisurely mornings and coffee on the front porch and going on afternoon walks and taking weekend trips that don't include a few hours of work in the mornings. Am I so obsessed with pursuing a good life in the future that I forget I can actually live a pretty good life right now? 
So as with most things, including dopamine up and down regulation, it does come down to balance. It comes down to pursuing moderation for moderation's sake. And you don't need multiple six figures or a closet full of golden goose sneakers, which by the way, I don't get it. I would love for someone to explain the fascination to me, but I digress to achieve that. If you would like to listen to the podcast episode that inspired this one, it's linked in the show notes. And again, a huge thank you to Cynthia, Kate, and Taylor for sharing your experiences, your stories with me. I know we really appreciate it. And keep an eye out for future prompts for episodes. I would love to hear from you in the future if you think that you actually have a really good anecdote that could make an episode better. Those will be posted on my Instagram in the link in bio, so just keep an eye out for those. And until next time, rich girls, have a lovely rest of your week, and I will see you next Wednesday.